Now, today is our first ever episode of this podcast and we have titled it Soap. You want to be a forensic psychologist. Now, a little bit about this podcast. It is aimed at those studying to be forensic psychologists or those that are early career forensic psychologists or, to be honest, just people that have a general interest in forensic psychology and are perhaps curious as to what it actually is forensic psychologists do. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and the lands in which we are today, the Agambe people and the Wurundjeri people, and to the traditional owners on the lands in which you, our listeners, join us. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. A little bit about myself. So my name is Madison Riauchi and I am going to be your host for this episode. I'm a current doctoral candidate at Swinburne University in the Centre of Forensic Behavioural Science in Melbourne. Another little bit of information about me, I'm the uh, student representative on the Australian Psychological Society College of Forensic Psychologists National Committee. Bit of a mouthful. Now today we're very lucky to be joined by Dr. Bruce Watt. Not only our first ever guest for the series, but also the person to answer all of our wonderings this episode. A little bit about Bruce. Bruce is a forensic psychologist. Luckily, we're off to a good start. He is employed as an associate professor with Bond University. He is currently in the position of head of school for psychology and discipline lead in social sciences. In 2018, Dr. Watt was made chair-elect of the APS College of Forensic Psychologists and has been the chair since 2019. Having completed the Masters of Forensic Psychology at ECU in 1996, Dr. Watt initially worked in Casarina Prison, delivering intensive interventions for incarcerated violent offenders. He subsequently worked in youth justice, child and youth forensic mental health, and for Evolve Therapeutic Services, providing mental health interventions for child protection clients. In 2008, Dr. Watt commenced private practice providing forensic psychological evaluations for Children's Court, the Federal Circuit Court, Criminal Court, Child Safety and other jurisdictions. A highlight of his career has been the opportunity to train and supervise provisionally registered psychologists working in various forensic contexts. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you very much for having me, Maddie. It's a pleasure. Not a problem. Um, so, Bruce, really, this being our first episode, um, we're hoping to kind of strip it back right to the very beginnings and kind of give people an understanding of what it means to be a forensic psychologist and how do we become forensic psychologists. So, um, just to start off with, I guess, how does someone become a forensic psychologist? Okay. The first part is you need to be dedicated to spend multiple years at university. Um, so, you need to spend the equivalent of six years full-time studying at uh, a university uh, and then two years supervised practice after completing your postgraduate um, qualification. So initially that's completing a, a Bachelor of Psychological Science uh, or equivalent, uh, then completing uh, honours in psychology or graduate diploma, uh, and then either a Master of Psychology, psychology Forensic or a Doctor of Psychology uh, in forensic. Uh, and so that will take uh, either six or, or seven years of study, depending upon which one you pursue. Uh, and currently in Australia, we have two study options uh, through Swinburne University and University of New South Wales. So quite a bit of study involved by the sounds of it. 
you need to be very passionate and dedicated to know this is the area that you want to work. Fair enough. And so um, just to just to repeat there, so there's currently only two courses in Australia available um, for someone to become a forensic psychologist. That doesn't seem like a lot compared to um, the amount of people who might be interested. That that's unfortunately is correct. Um, we had a, a growth in programs, if we go back 10 years ago, where there was anywhere around 12 or, or more programs across Australia. Uh, but unfortunately, the, the numbers have, have decreased. Um, and so certainly one of our ambitions longer term is to see a growth in programs across Australia. Um, but this is what we have at the moment. And so if there was to be a, a growth in programs and um, being able to offer more opportunities for people to become forensic psychologists, what would have to happen? Is there just a need for more people to be interested or what's your thoughts on that? Uh, in my observations and experience, there's a lot of people who are interested in the area of forensic psychology. Um, there's a, a couple of points. One is that in the area of psychology, uh, people focus upon uh, Medicare-based work uh, and think that clinical psychology is the uh, number one area to work. Um, however, there's uh, probably more work in the area of forensic psychology um, for as much remuneration or, or quite often more. Uh, secondly, to occur um, is for universities to put on more programs, uh, which is perhaps more challenging at the moment, given that we're in a COVID environment, uh, funding is tight, uh, and there's a lot of restructuring that's been occurring within universities. Um, so there's quite a few changes that need to occur before more forensic programs become available. All right. So thanks for kind of giving an overview there of um, you know how things are travelling at the moment to becoming a forensic psychologist and how people might go about um, going through those pathways. So I guess going into a little bit more about being a forensic psychologist, in your eyes, what does it mean to be a forensic psychologist? Uh, uh, I like a simple definition, which is applying psychology to the law. And so that means applying psychological research and the practice that we use in psychology, but using it uh, within the legal context. Uh, so someone working in the, as a forensic psychologist um, will often find themselves working uh, for courts uh, and other jurisdictions providing expert evaluations uh, and or uh, working in locations where people are involved in legal systems, uh, such as working in prisons, uh, youth detention, child protection, people who are seeking compensation for injury, uh, security organisations, uh, to, to name a, a few of the key areas. Across each of these areas, a commonality is that there's potential for harm um, towards individuals it is a key area that forensic psychologists work in. Mm. Sounds like it's a very diverse area to work in. You're not just working with offenders um, or working with victims. You're working with a whole different range of people from um, different areas by the sounds of it. Absolutely. Uh, I think psychology broadly does allow quite a bit of flexibility in the areas that you can work in. Uh, and that definitely also applies to forensic psychology. Uh, and through my own career, but also other people that I know who work as a forensic psychologist, they have moved around and work with different populations and in different areas. Um, so if it's an area that you're interested in, it gives you the opportunity to develop expertise in, in multiple areas 
Uh, if you're getting bored with one line of work, you can look to uh, upskill and, and work in another area of forensic psychology. It's great to hear that um, it is so diverse and allows people to become experts in um, lots of different areas. You're not just pigeonholed into kind of one particular line of work, which is great. Um, you mentioned before um, the, the clinical program um, and clinical psychology. So I guess that's probably the type of psychologist that people are most familiar with is the kind of clinical psychologist, um, you know, private practice. Um, so I guess just out of interest for people listening, what would you describe as the difference between a forensic psychologist and a clinical psychologist? Uh, An overriding point of difference is that a clinical psychologist, uh, their responsibility and duties primarily to the client who comes and and attends for appointments, attends for assessments and treatment. Uh, As a forensic psychologist, your client is often caught Um, or a legal system or some jurisdiction that requests your assessment or requests your interventions. Uh, That creates some ethical dilemmas sometimes where you have both, you're providing a service to an individual, but then it's a uh, larger organisation that's brokered the service. Uh, Forensic psychologists are trained in working in areas of law, so they have understanding about what's required in Uh, collating and providing evidence in legal context uh, and how to answer uh, legal questions. Um, Forensic psychologists use somewhat different strategies uh, to clinical psychology, particularly in the use of investigative interviewing, where the focus is on gathering information or gathering evidence and often using uh, structured risk assessment tools uh, to assess uh, risk of harm to others. Uh, and the nature of the interventions that forensic psychology uh, is often applied to differs to clinical psychology. Um, so forensic psychology, uh, a lot of work is on reducing those behaviours that are potentially harmful towards others, uh, reducing the risk that someone will be violent or perpetrate sex offending, uh, arson, uh, child maltreatment, uh, and other areas where there, there is a risk of, of significant harm towards others. Thanks for clarifying that. And just in case there are people who aren't psychologists um, or trained psychologists listening to this podcast, just to kind of give an idea of um, when we talk about work as a psychologist, I guess, um, from my understanding, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I hope I'm not, um, the whole idea of when when someone walks um, into our office or through our door, um, the first thing we would do is is an assessment, and sometimes that that's all we do with a client, depending on what the referral question is. And then the second part being intervention, um, which is kind of your traditional thoughts around treatment. Um, and yeah, then it would be close closing of that work with that person. Um, is that uh, a fair kind of thing to put to the audience um, for people who aren't psychologists? Yeah, I think it is important to make it a clear delineation between assessment work and treatment. Uh, and sometimes they might follow on from each other or sometimes they might be clearly distinct. Um, so if a client does attend uh, maybe a mental health service or a forensic psychologist uh, requesting help in an area, a psychologist will start with an assessment to identify what's going wrong for that person and then work with them in providing an intervention. Uh, 
quite often as well, uh, forensic psychologists will complete evaluations only, particularly if it's for the court. Um, so they'll provide, uh, may complete one, two, multiple interviews, administrative testing, uh, review other sources of information that's combined together to write a report for court. Uh, if there's a need for treatment or interventions afterwards, that would be delivered by someone else. Uh, and that's to make sure that the person who's providing uh, reports for court can remain impartial and provide objective evidence. Great, excellent, thank you. Um, glad to hear that I have it right after three and a bit years. <laughs> um, so I guess, Bruce, in your eyes, you've been working in this field for a very long time. Um, you've been through all the training. Um, so why is forensic psychologists, uh, forensic psychology, sorry, important? Um, it provide, forensic psychologists have a key role in providing uh, relevant and useful information to courts that's admissible. Um, so forensic psychologists do use techniques um, and are transparent and impartial in their approach that allows the collection of information and answering legal questions. Uh, and these are legal questions that have big impacts on people's lives. Um, so evaluation might determine if, if someone, for example, is uh, fit for trial. So do they have enough understanding to be able to participate in legal proceedings? Um, and if they don't, then different parameters need to be put in place. Uh, that's important for fairness and justice, which are, are principles of our legal system. Uh, forensic psychologists have a role to play in, in the family law arena. Uh, such as determining which child would be best, uh, would, would it be in their best interests uh, to live with which parent. Uh, decisions in, in family law can have lifelong impact upon these children in terms of uh, which parent they live with and how much time do they spend with the, the other parent as, as they grow up. Um, similarly, is providing evaluations in the area of child safety. So making sure that children are safe from harm. Um, protecting uh, children from harm is an essential right um, and is necessary for them to develop and grow to be um, healthy uh, individuals. And so it's these types of assessments that can inform uh, decisions in, in the court. Uh, and there's other areas for decision-making that forensic psychologists have input into, such as if a person has incurred an, an injury uh, that is, is suitable for some form of comp compensation uh, and informing courts in areas related to human rights and, and justice, uh, such as where involuntary detention orders are put in place. So in summary, um, forensic psychologists have input into a, a lot of important uh, legal questions. And it sounds like, um, yeah, there's a, there's a distinction there. You can be a forensic psychologist in perhaps a more criminal system, but then a forensic psychologist in the civil system. But overall, there's quite a large responsibility that um, sits on the shoulders of a forensic psychologist. That's a lot to kind of hold. Um, and I guess going on from that um, in terms of your career, Bruce, I mean, what, what has been your career progression? We heard a bit about it um, uh, at the start, but I'm really interested to hear from, from you directly um, what you've gotten up to in your career. <laughs> what I've gotten up to. Um, 
Well, initially, I'm interested in studying psychology because I was at that stage I was a labourer and thought, well, this is actually like hard work. So I decided to become a psychologist. <laughs> I still do hard work, but it's kind of of a, of a different nature. Um, around 25 years ago, I completed my Master of Psychology in, in Forensic uh, Psychology. Uh, I initially started work in uh, Maximum Security Prison in Perth, Western Australia, uh, running violent offender treatment programs for incarcerated offenders. Um, I had the opportunity to develop and evaluate these uh, innovative uh, interventions. Uh, subsequently, I, I worked in uh, adult forensic mental health uh, for a period of time in, in prisons in Western Australia. Um, I then made the trip across the, the Nullarbor and ended up in Queensland where I uh, started to work in uh, child and youth forensic uh, mental health, uh, which is working with uh, young people who have both mental health and offending behaviour concerns, um, which also gave me the opportunity to spend some time travelling around parts of Queensland that you, you wouldn't typically uh, go to. Uh, I then worked with Evolve Therapeutic Services, you know, which as you mentioned in the introduction, is, um, it's part of Queensland Health that provides mental health services for young people uh, who are under child protection orders. Um, I, 13 years ago, I, I moved away from that area of work and commenced my work at Bond University. Uh, and at the same time, I started private practice work. Uh, and in my private practice work, I, I focus on providing evaluations for courts uh, and other jurisdictions. Uh, and have also provided uh, supervisions for uh, forensic practitioners, including psychologists, uh, and people of uh, other disciplines. Um, what an extensive uh, experience you've got there. Um, something that just, I guess, came to my mind when you were describing what you've done, um, you know, over in WA, sounds like there was quite a, a lot of work with um, an adult population. And then when you came over to Queensland, um, working more in that youth space, I'm just wondering, um, why the switch from, from adult to youth? What, what interested you in that? It was kind of partly opportunistic. And, and so that's one thing that does occur during any career in, in psychology is that opportunities arise and then you can choose to, to pursue those. Um, but secondly, uh, having worked with adult violent offenders, I became uh, more interested in the developmental pathway to how individuals end up uh, committing serious, serious violent crimes and thereby spending significant parts of their life in prison. Uh, so I was interested in learning more around the developmental pathways. Uh, and secondly, I was interested in intervening early. Uh, and we know from research that we, we can identify precursors for people becoming uh, adult offenders. Um, and if we intervene early um, with children and with adolescents, uh, we can potentially divert their trajectory from a lifetime of being involved in crime and being involved in the uh, adult correction system, uh, which has huge benefits uh, for society. Um, so that led to my uh, shift in focus uh, into working in, in the child and youth uh, forensic arena. Um, sounds like it would be incredibly rewarding working with young people in that space. 
And when you mentioned working um, in forensic youth mental health, so you've got young people who have um, mental health but also um, have offending behaviours, how did you find um, that mixture between mental health and offending behaviour? How, how, how did you go in kind of um, working in, I guess, two headspaces in a way that kind of blur into one? Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a good, it's a good way of you think about it as, as two headspaces. Um, and at the same time, there's a, a lot of overlap between mental health difficulties and, and, and uh, offending behaviours. Um, and that applies whether you look at young people or, or whether you look at um, adults. Um, young people with both offending and, and mental health concerns, they, um, the, the, there's shared pathways to both in terms of history of maltreatment and uh, abuse in family, um, challenging temperaments such as difficulty sustaining attention and hyperactivity, um, early school difficulties, um, risk of dropping out of school and gravitating towards antisocial peers. And, and those background factors can lead to both uh, development of mental health disorders uh, as well as offending behaviours. So if you look at identifying and, and treating those overlapping risk factors, it, it has benefits in, in both of those areas. Um, it also has uh, an important Im implications in terms of uh, navigating with, with different systems. So you have to work with both mental health services and you have to work with youth justice services uh, and quite often with um, education, uh, child protection. So needs for there's a great need for collaborative care. So bringing key stakeholders together, making sure everyone's working uh, on the same page to try and uh, lead to better outcomes for uh, children and young people who, who have such difficulties. And I hear um, just in, in what you were saying earlier as well about there was you've done quite a lot of um, clinical work and then there was an interest, I guess, in going into academia and your current role at Bond University. Um, so tell me about how you got into to academia. How did that all kind of transpire? Sure. Um, so from well, during both my honours and my master's, I, I was quite interested in research and I quite enjoyed the research side. Um, after finishing my research, I was quite keen to focus more on practice and, and develop those skills, uh, but I still enjoyed and, and, and kind of yearned for, for pursuing more research. Um, and there were some key researchers around that time that I was particularly inspired by, such as the work of David Farrington, who um, set up longitudinal research studies for um, young people in, in London who developed antisocial behaviours. And I was quite inspired to branch more into uh, those areas of research. And when I did move to Queensland, the opportunity arose for me to commence a PhD, which was looking at uh, young people with conduct problems, so aggression, uh, stealing, non-compliance, who and these young people who'd been referred to mental health services uh, and how we could enhance their involvement in, in these services. And fortunately, utilised that opportunity and then uh, finished my PhD 
um, which that, and around the same time, there was a, an opening for a forensic psychologist at, at Bond University where, where I currently work. And um, so th the pieces sort of fell together in the right way to, to lead me uh, on the path. Um, subsequent to then, I, I enjoy both. I enjoy practice, so um, working with people as a forensic psychologist, uh, as well as completing uh, research um, albeit in my, my head of school role, I have a lot more time spending doing administration than perhaps some of those other areas at, at right at this point in time. Right. Um, <laughs> sounds great. <laughs> Everyone loves paperwork. Um, <laughs> and I guess thinking about so the, the practice or the clinical work and then also the academic work at the moment. So for you, um, what would be a, a typical day in your life, say, um, in your role uh, at Bond and then in your role um, in practice? Okay. I'll focus perhaps more so on my, my role in, in practice at, at this point. Um, and so I might have an evaluation to complete, for example, for children's court. So I might have an adolescent who's appearing before the court, might be charged with multiple counts of robbery, um, stealing, unlawful use of motor vehicle. Uh, and the judge or magistrate interested to know why did this young person commit this crime at this point in time uh, and what can be done to reduce that trajectory. So initial starting point is I'll be reading through the police statements, court documents, get an idea about the charges the young person is, is facing. Uh, review any background information such as offending history and uh, child protection history, um, and then plan either to complete the assessment in person, which was the case prior to this year, uh, or remote. Um, and with my in-person assessments, they often involve travelling to a youth detention centre uh, or a youth justice service. Um, have to book beforehand um, and have my temperature checked and wear a mask when I go in at the moment. Um, and then spending around three or four hours with the young person, um, completing a, an interview uh, and administering relevant tests. Um, so that's interviews about getting to know about where they're living before they came into detention, uh, family background, relationships, uh, type of crimes that they've been involved in, uh, use of drugs and alcohol, uh, friends, uh, cultural backgrounds. Uh, and then look at tests that help inform the referral question of why, why they are where they are, uh, often assessing uh, areas of intelligence, uh, personality function, um, and that information plus collateral information is used to inform um, areas such as the, the risk of further offending. Um, after spending around three hours with the young person, um, then the drive back home and when I go back home, contacting child safety, uh, youth justice, education, uh, to get further background about the uh, individual uh, and looking at some way to communicate with parents, which might be meeting them in person or, or via the telephone, depending upon where they are. Um, what do I do with all this information? 
it all goes together a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle to try and answer the question, well, why is this young person where they are now and what can be done to help them? Um, put it together in a report, which is then forwarded to um, youth justice and, and then to court. And then I'm done. What a process. <laughs> um, wow. Sounds like a lot of work. And then you just wake up and do it all the next day, right? Um, fortunately, I space it out a little bit, but <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. That's, that's the idea. Yeah. And I guess something that um, people might be thinking uh, when you tell them I'm a forensic psychologist, um, I know that my parents were, were quite alarmed when I um, started to study to become a forensic psychologist. Um, you know, has there ever been a time where um, you've been concerned about your safety um, in situations that you've been in, or have you found generally that? Um, you know, it's pretty safe being a forensic psychologist. Um, I'll jump to the second part and then go back to the first part. Um, essentially, if you take the necessary precautions, you'll generally uh, will be safe. Um, by necessary precautions, not taking risks so that you're in an isolated place with individuals who could pose a risk to harm. Um, make If you're working in prison, make sure that you are familiar with all prison protocols and that you have necessary security in place where that's indicated. Early in my career, when I was working in uh, maximum security prison in uh, Perth, West Australia, one of the prisoners that we had on the program, we had to exit from the program because he continued to engage in violent behaviour and uh, stand over other prisoners. And he was not responding to treatment. Um, and so my role at the con conclusion uh, was to provide feedback on the report, which highlighted that he had absence of prog progress in the program. Uh, and the implication for him was that this was gonna affect his application for parole. Um, so it's not something that he, he wanted to hear. Um, so this, Prisoner who had quite an extensive history of violence, hence being in the program, um, attended wearing big chunky rings on his fingers, which he hadn't worn any other time, uh, <laughs> thereby communicating a message. Um, and was quite physically tense uh, during the feedback procedure. Uh, not the most comfortable of days, um, so my way of managing that was, first of all, planning ahead. So it was in an area where prison officers were close by. They knew what was occurring. They knew who, who was present. Um, so I wasn't um, unobserved uh, during the time that I was providing feedback. Uh, secondly, I kept it objective as focusing upon this is the observations, this is what the information was. Uh, and... Part of the work of a psychologist is rolling with resistance, so I'm not actually going to get into an argument with the, the points that he's going to raise. Um, that scenario, albeit felt a bit tense, it, it went through um, without any physical threat towards me, apart from the, the implied intonation. Um, so it's a possibility you might experience those types of scenarios working as a forensic psychologist. Um, the key advice is to make sure that you anticipate, plan ahead, uh, and make sure that you have necessary precautions in place and never put yourself in a position 
that would put you at risk. Very wise advice. Um, would you say that was probably one of the most challenging moments in your career? Uh, probably a, a very challenging moment early in my mm. career. Um, um, any other um, challenging moments for, for you, perhaps later on or around the same time? Yeah, a different category of challenge uh, comes from working in the child abuse arena. And you, you're exposed to quite horrific experiences that unfortunately some children in our society have endured. Um, so you're reviewing material which uh, no child should have to live through. Um, and so you do hear information that is disturbing. Um, how do I, I manage those types of situations? Um, is I keep in focus, what is my overarching goal? My overarching goal is uh, reducing the harms that can occur. And that's reducing the harms to that child or those children who are involved in, in such a situation. Um, and the best way that I can do that is remaining objective, gathering all the data and evidence that I can uh, to inform my assessment, which then informs the court. Um, so part of it is being able to compartmentalise my own, uh, or acknowledging my own emotional response, but then being able to continue to focus upon being objective in, in gathering that, that information uh, of progress. Uh, another tip for those types of scenarios is always utilising peer support <laughs> um, is uh, important so you can debrief about those scenarios. And I guess amongst all of those um, really difficult experiences and um, really challenging things to, to hear and take on and digest as a forensic psychologist, um, it can all sound a little bit doom and gloom there for a little while. Um, but in terms of rewarding moments in your career, what, what have been some particularly rewarding moments in your opinion? Uh, that flows very nicely from that type of scenario that I was describing in child abuse cases um, because it allows you to have to inform courts who are decision makers about where children should live and it can lead to much more favourable outcomes for those young people than they might have experienced otherwise. Uh, one example that stands out in my mind was completing an assessment uh, in relation to a mother who had four children to four different fathers. Uh, and the oldest, they ranged between infants and a 10-year-old. Uh, and the three older ones were all subject to quite extreme abuse. Uh, and the children were very clearly traumatised and, and terrified of their mother. Um, the Up until that situation, none of the fathers had any input or knew much at all about the, the children's lives. Um, the report uh, was accepted in the court and helped inform more suitable placement decisions. Uh, and through subsequent feedback from the child safety officer, I learned that each of those four children were doing much better uh, in their environments that they ended up being with and, and three of those were reunited and um, supported by their fathers and, and, and much more favourable trajectories. 
than the pathways that they were at, at the start of my assessment. Um, that's really lovely and uh, a nice reminder as to why we do the work that we do, particularly in the, the child youth area. Um, I guess just thinking about forensic psychology and, and where is forensic psychology um, heading, um, in your opinion, you know, what is next for this discipline um, or potentially what are areas of improvement for forensic psychology? Yeah. Um, well, one of the areas for improvement fits with what we discussed earlier is the need for more training programs. Um, an area, more emerging areas, uh, is in the areas of, of domestic terrorism, uh, using psychology to understand around terrorism uh, and being involved in assessments and uh, interventions in that area. Uh, and working in, in the cyber arena. So with um, cyber technology has allowed for greater diversity of offending. Um, and subsequently applying forensic psychology uh, into that context uh, to complete both evaluations and to help people who have difficulties in that area. Um, one area that we need to do more work in is, is working with uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, involved in forensic contexts. Um, such individuals are overrepresented uh, in uh, child safety, uh, youth detention and prisons. Uh, and we need to do more in terms of uh, developing evidence-based risk assessments and interventions uh, with these populations uh, and working in collaboration uh, with these areas. Um, so I think that the latter is probably the most paramount uh, area that, that we need to work on. Sounds like there's lots of um, opportunities for, for growth in the area and some really exciting things that will be happening um, for people interested in becoming forensic psychologists or, or currently in the midst of um, trying to decide where they want to take themselves in their forensic psychology career. Um, just to, to finish off, um, I would like to kind of get any advice that you might have for someone starting out in the profession or currently training to become a forensic psychologist. What advice would you give to those people like myself? I think seeking out someone who could be a mentor to you, someone who inspires you uh, to pursue the area that you work on. Um, earlier in my career, I had the opportunity to work with some uh, leaders in the, the field uh, then in uh, forensic psychology, um, then Associate Professor Kevin Howes, Professor Don Thompson, um, Guy Hall in, in West Australia, uh, Steve Baldwin, people who are um, and continue to provide leadership in the area of forensic psychology and so working with those people. Uh, not everyone has the opportunity to work with such um, uh, leaders in the field but making contact with uh, mentors um, and utilising people who, who you inspire, who inspire you. Uh, I mentioned David Farrington, whose research was motivating for me. Uh, I've never met him and never spoke with him, but I, I quite enjoy uh, his work and his research, so that I use that as, as a form of inspiration. Uh, a second area would be to look for opportunities for um, attending uh, continuing professional development events in the area of forensic psychology. And that allows you to continue to learn about the area, but also to start developing your professional network. 
Um, and it's through professional networks that opportunities arise. You get to um, learn about developments in the area. You get to run scenarios past, past people. Um, so developing your, your professional network is, is very important. Um, and thirdly, and largely with my academic hat, is read forensic psychology research and keep up to date with that area. Great. Thank you so much, Bruce. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak to me today and um, to really help inform people about forensic psychology and um, what it means to be a forensic psychologist. I think I'll, I'll speak for everyone um, when I say that you've had a very interesting um, career and um, a lot of experiences. Well, it's been um, great to talk to you. It's been my pleasure, Maddie. Thank you. And that concludes the first episode of Forensic Minds. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope that you've enjoyed listening. Next time, we'll be talking with Dr. Michael Davis. He'll be busting some myths about what it's really like to be a forensic psych and also talking about his career and expertise. Hope you can join us then. Thank you.